0: If you're new, my name is Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a visitor with us today, I'd like to say welcome to you. Uh, The Bible says that the church is a family, and uh, as all families, it's sometimes necessary to get everyone together and have a chat. And so, uh, visitor, if you would indulge us a minute or two uh, to have a chat, Um, the Bible says in... Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the teaching of Holy Scripture. It is the full conviction of all of the elders. Recently, there has been, uh, shall we say, some misunderstanding about this. And so I just wanted to make it clear what I have said for over a year in this place, unequivocally, without question, and without qualification, that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, when you turn to the Lord in faith, repenting of your sins, you will be saved and granted eternal life. If you have questions about what the Bible teaches about this, about what your elders understand the Bible to teach about this, or God's sovereignty, or human responsibility, please come and ask. I want to say thank you to those of you who have already come and asked those questions. I promise you won't find your elders scary we're squirrely but sincere and we don't really care for debates and besides talking about Jesus and what he accomplished at the cross is literally our favorite thing so please come if you have any questions now on to Luke chapter 9 if you have a bible with you please go to Luke chapter 9 we'd like to pick up where we left off last lord's day in verse 28 If you don't have a Bible in church today, grab one of the black ones from the pew in front of you. You will find Luke chapter 9 on page 867 of the church Bible. I will read from verse 28 down to verse 36, a section uh, under the heading, The Transfiguration. So I'll read this section of Scripture, and then we'll pray together, and we'll work through it verse by verse. Here now. The word of the Lord. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, They saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Father, I have nothing to offer your people this morning, but your Son. So feed us now from your Word, the truth of the revelation of God the Son. Would you give us eyes to be awoken like these men, to see the glory of Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Do this for Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. Some years of human history are called Anis Mirabilis, Miracle Years. And they're so named because of the major advances in science and human progress. 1543 was an Anis Mirabilis, but it was that year that Nicholas Copernicus Discovered that the Earth revolves around the sun, and not the sun around the Earth. 1666 was another honest mirabilis. It was the year that Sir Isaac Newton fell upon the theory of gravity, the law of gravity. The latest honest mirabilis is the year 1905, and it was that year that a barely 26-year-old Albert Einstein produced four papers which revolutionized our understanding of space and time and mass and energy. 1905 is the year that E equals MC squared came out. And if you live long enough, you're likely to have your own honest mirabilis, your own miracle year, a year which shapes your life. Emil and I were talking about this before the service today the year you became a Christian. was probably a year that changed the trajectory of your whole life. Or maybe it was the year that you struck out on your own and started your own business. Maybe it was the year you got married, the year of the birth of your first child. Maybe it was the year that the Cleveland Browns beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in the playoffs. That might have been a miracle year. It was for me. Well, my real honest mirabalis was the year 2004. That year I was reading the Bible a lot, trying to understand what I believed. And I was at the same time reading the Bible a lot. I was also trying to claw my way through the writings of an old preacher named Jonathan Edwards. And I was trying to reconcile Edwards' view of God with my own view of God. Edward's view of God was just so much bigger than my own. And in 2004, the Spirit of God used his word to open my eyes to a little bit more of the bigness of my God. And that year, helped in some part by the text before us, by Ephesians 1 and Hebrews 1 and Acts 17 and Isaiah 43 and a dozen other passages, the course of my life was changed. All I wanted to do was to know this God more, to delight in this God more, and to tell everyone about this God more. I had my own Copernican-like revolution where I realized that this God was way bigger, way grander than I had ever believed before, and that it turned out I was not the center of the universe, that he was. It's a revolutionary idea that I am not the center of the... I'm the oldest child, after all, so kind of makes sense. At 26, Albert Einstein discovered space-time, and at 26, I figured out that I wasn't the center of the universe. So set your expectations accordingly. The most help in that year came to me through one three-letter word in Colossians 1.16. It was the word for. In Colossians 1.16, the Bible says, all things were created through him and for him. This means, I surmise, that all God does, He does for His glory through the person and work of His Son, Christ. That everything God made and everything God does, He does for His glory. Or as Paul put it in Ephesians 1, to the praise of His glorious grace. Which means that the purpose in God sending his son to die on the cross to save sinners is not primarily about saving sinners. The purpose in God sending his son to die on the cross to save sinners was primarily to the praise of his glorious grace in saving sinners. God making much of God is the goal of the gospel. And everything else are means to that end. And so to me, this was a Copernican-like revolution. It was humbling. It was exhilarating. And it was anchoring all at the same time. I wonder if these three disciples, Peter and John and James, had something of an honest mirabilis when the Lord Jesus took them up the mountain and revealed his glory to them. We shall see. The main idea, this text, the best as I can tell, is, is this. That Jesus Christ is and always has been the point of everything. Look to Him and listen to Him. That Jesus Christ has been, always has been, always will be the point of everything. So we're to look to Him and we're to listen to Him. I hope that you'll see that as we work our way through this text. Three parts, three mental handles as we move our way through it. Verse 28 to 31, we'll see Jesus reveals His glory. Verses 28 to 31, Jesus reveals His glory. Verse 32 and 33, we'll see Peter having his own revelation. Peter reveals his humanity. Peter reveals his humanity. And then finally, in verse 34 to 36, we'll see the Father revealing his purpose. The Father reveals his purpose. So that's how it's teed up. Let's dig in. Jesus reveals his glory. Go back to verse 28 to 31 again. About eight days after Jesus said those things that we considered last week, He took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white, Mark says, as no man on earth could bleach them. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament of your Bible, you'll no doubt pick up on many Old Testament themes in this passage. Consider a mountain, prayer, the glory of God, Moses, Elijah, a cloud, God speaking from the cloud, all of this deeply rooted in the Old Testament of your Bible. And so, all of those things are helpful to us to understand what it is that is happening in the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible teaches that God created man upright, but the man turned away from God, and each one of us have went our own way. And since the very beginning, God has been making a promise that one would come, the chosen one would come, and He would crush the enemy of mankind, and that He would restore mankind's relationship to His Creator. At first, it seems that that was obviously Cain, but then Cain did not save; Cain killed his brother. And from there, humanity descended into chaos. At one point, it seemed that Noah was the one. But then after a very wet reset of the world, Noah's ark rested on the mountain, and Noah and his family repopulated the earth. Noah did not crush the enemy, nor did Noah restore mankind to God. God chose Abraham. Could he be the chosen one. Well, as you know, Abraham failed to trust God, and so surely his miracle son Isaac was the chosen one. But then Isaac also failed. Isaac's son Jacob was a schemer, so certainly he wasn't the one, but maybe one of his 12 sons were the one. Until you read that sons 1 through 10 were jealous of son 11. They staged his death, sold him into slavery, so they're out. Later, during a famine, they come to Egypt where Joseph, son 11, is running things, and he saves his family from starvation, and he invites them to live in Egypt. So you're reading this and thinking, maybe Joseph is the one, but then Joseph died, and subsequent pharaohs forget about Joseph and Joseph's family, and the Israelites are like some of you, they like having lots of babies, and so they have lots of babies in Egypt, and this makes people nervous, so they turn Israel into slaves. And slaves, they remained for 400 years. And They called on God through their oppression, and heaven was silent. But then God sent them a deliverer, a man named Moses. And The question is, is Moses the one? Through Moses, God judged Israel's captors. He delivered his people out of slavery. Through Moses, God renewed his covenant that he made with his people on a mountain. He spoke to Moses from a cloud. He promised that he would bring his people into the promised land. and God would lead his people by appearing before them as a pillar of fire at night. And a cloud-shaped pillar, a pillar-shaped cloud by day. And when the cloud would move, they would move and God led them into the promised land. And you're reading the story and you're thinking, surely this must be, Moses must be the one. On one particular mountaintop experience, Moses prayed to God and said, show me your glory. And God said, I'll show you my goodness, but you can't see my face. For no one can see my face and live. Moses comes down from the mountain with the law of God in his hands, and God tells his people to build him a tabernacle, a precisely designed tent where his glory would dwell among them. And they did this, and God dwelt among them as a cloud. And Moses brought God's people in, he brought brought God's people to the land, but he never brought them into the land. Instead, he climbed a mountain and he died. And so you're wondering, who is this chosen one to crush the enemy and to reconcile God's people to God? After Israel finally settles in the land, they compromise and they began to engage in false worship and the glory of God leaves. Then King David rose and there are a lot of signs in King David's life to suggest that maybe he was the one to crush the enemy and to restore mankind to God. But David had his own problems. And so God made a promise to David that one of your sons will rule. And so it sure seemed that Solomon was the one. He was the chosen one. He was wise. He was powerful. He converted the tabernacle into a temple, a permanent structure on a mountain. And when Solomon dedicated the temple of God, the glory cloud that just keeps on showing up in Israel's history shows up here. And it dwells in the temple. Was Solomon the chosen one? But then Solomon's own heart is led astray. And throughout all of this, God speaks to his people through men called prophets, Elijah being one of them, calling his people to repent of their sins and to, re- to return to him. And after many years of patience, many years of grace, warning after warning, prophet after prophet, God sent judgment against his people and the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem was destroyed. The chosen one, nowhere to be found. And that's kind of where the Old Testament ends, on a cliffhanger, with the story unfinished. The reader wanting and waiting for the chosen one to come, which had been promised thousands of years before, and had still shown up, still yet shown up. And The world entered 400 years of silence. With no prophets, no revelation, no word from God. Sound familiar? But then, heaven began to stir. And an angel appeared to a virgin teenager called Mary. The Spirit of God would overshadow her, and she would conceive a son. and She would call his name Jesus. As Matthew says, he will save his people from their sins. He would be the chosen one who would crush the enemy and restore his people to God. Some 30 years later, we arrive at the passage before us. This Jesus, who was prophesied so long ago, takes his three disciples up the mountain to pray. Why these, why these three men? Why not another three of the disciples? Why not Andrew, Philip, and Thomas? I don't know. Jesus is God. God makes choices. We're told that as Jesus is praying, Luke says the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Some translations say white, as bright as lightning. Jesus Unveiled a sliver of his divinity on the mountain. You see, by becoming man, God the Son veiled his full divinity. Which is how the old Christmas hymn puts it. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. When Jesus was born, he wrapped his divinity in the cloak of his humanity. And on this mountain, for just a moment, God the Son allowed a sliver of his deity to escape through the seams of his humanity. And it shot through like a blast of lightning, transforming his clothes bright white, whiter than any man could bleach them. This is God the Son, on the mountaintop, radiating the glory of God. If you see that, well, you can't help but be changed. Luke says two men are talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Why those two men? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But most commentators see Moses and Elijah representing the Old Testament. The Old Testament is often referred to as the Law and the Prophets. And so Moses representing the Law, because it was to Moses that God gave the Law, and Elijah representing the Prophets of God. And they appear in glory. Verse 31 says they're speaking with Jesus of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, the word translated as departure is the same word as exodus. Moses and Elijah are talking with the Lord Jesus about another exodus, another act of God in delivering his people from slavery. And now, of course, Jesus' exodus is not to take people out of Egypt and into Canaan, but from sin to salvation, from Satan to the kingdom of God, from death to eternal life. For it was Jesus who was the chosen one to crush the enemy, to restore man to God. And I just think it's wonderful that Moses gets to be on the mountain with Jesus beholding his glory. Because you remember earlier, Moses prayed, show me your glory. And here Moses is again 2,000 years later, and God has not forgotten his servant's request. When the Lord Jesus climbed on the mountain, a call goes out, and God the Father grabs hold of that prayer of his servant Moses, saying, Moses, do you remember when you asked to see my glory? Here he is. Here. Here. No man can see my face and live. Now I'm telling you, look upon the face of my son and live. So friends know, that when you offer a prayer to this God, it is never forgotten. It is never ignored. He hears. He always hears. Jesus reveals his glory. Let's keep reading. Verse 32, Peter makes a revelation of his own own humanity. This is verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. The disciples are heavy with sleep. Not sure why. Is it late at night? I don't know. But it is in, it rather interesting. The disciples are asleep. And when they awake, they see the glory of Christ. And they see Moses and Elijah also in glory. I just want you to think about what happens at conversion. A sinner spiritually dead in her sins is asleep blind to the glories of God in Christ. And then she wakes, and with the eyes of faith, she sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in seeing Him, what else does she see? She sees the glory of the law and the prophets, because they wrote of Him, they spoke of Him. Peter, John, and James wake to see the glories of Christ. They see Moses and Elijah standing with Him. How do they know it's Moses and Elijah? Were they wearing name tags? I don't know. Were they wearing those aprons like they do at the Cracker Barrel with their name sewn on them? I don't know how they knew. Somehow they knew this is Moses and this is Elijah. And so here you have incarnate deity shining with the brightness of a thousand suns. You have Moses and Elijah looking on. And you have Peter speaking up. <laughs> I've made no secret of my affection for the Apostle Peter. He's a guy who sticks his foot in his mouth, he gets in his own way, he falls flat on his face a lot, and I think, I think I just relate to him. So he says, Master, good call in inviting us up here, right? I'm good at camping, right? So why don't you guys keep talking, you stand there, I'll go make us some tents, I'll be right back. But of course, Peter isn't talking about camping he's he's thinking of the feast of tabernacles one of the great festivals in israel shavuot is the feast of tabernacles where god's people would gather once a year and for a whole week they would live in these temporary structures tents and it was a way of remembering the way that god provided for them in all those years in the wilderness They lived in tents in those days. It's also a way of looking forward to the day when God's kingdom comes and they're established forever. Peter sees Jesus. He sees Moses and Elijah, and he's like, I know just what to do. I'm going to make tents. Luke's gospel is the only gospel that adds this very merciful phrase. Not knowing what he said. I think Peter's behind this. Telling people, Luke, you've got to just put something in there that says, I didn't know what I was saying. Like, I just don't, I don't get a lot of press in the gospels. It's not good for me usually. Maybe Peter is just trying to hang on to this moment. Let's, let, let's make this last a whole week. I mean, Jesus is in glory. How amazing would it be to camp with Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Maybe he's still salty about losing out on the camping trip that got ruined last time. Who knows the reason? But the problem with Peter's suggestion here is that he's wanting to make three tents one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. He's putting Jesus on the same level as the law and the prophets. And it's at this point that old Peter gets interrupted. And oh, what an interruption it is. Let's keep reading. Verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The cloud appears on the mountain. It's back. The cloud delivered Israel out of Egypt. The cloud covered the mountain of God and God spoke to Moses through the cloud. The cloud that led God's people through the wilderness, which appeared at the tabernacle, which appeared at Solomon's temple, is here. It's back. And in exactly the same way that God spoke to Moses from the glory cloud, God spoke again. And here, God reveals his purpose. This is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen. God's ultimate final purpose is to bring glory to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. This is my son. Listen to him. All things created through him and for him. And so Cornerstone Pickle Baptist Church, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Everything is about Jesus Christ, everything. He is the sum and the center of all that matters. He is that from which everything sprang. He is that to which everything is funneled. He is the nucleus of the universe. He is the white, hot center of the Father's delight. You want to know the purpose of your life? This is it. This is it. My son, my chosen one, listen to him. You want to know the purpose of the church? It is this, to point to Christ, the chosen one, to listen to him. Verse 36 brings it all together. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Moses and Elijah were nowhere to be seen. The law and the prophets fade from view. Or more precisely, they find their target. Christ stands alone. Everything always has been, always will be, all about Jesus. This is what the Mount of transfiguration, is about. This is what Christmas is all about. All the law and the prophets pointed to Christ. The first Adam failed, and he pointed to the last Adam who wouldn't. Noah saved his family from a flood, but not from sin. Jesus drank the flood of God's judgment to save his family, From sin. Jesus is the son of promise that Isaac wasn't. He is the greater Joseph. Through rejection from his brothers, he becomes the salvation of his brothers. Jesus is the greater Moses who delivered his people not from political slavery, but from something far worse slavery to sin. Jesus is the greater Elijah who not only spoke the word of God, but who is the word of God. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. When the final word is spoken, Jesus stands alone. Sinner, what will you say when you stand before the great judge on the last day? Why should God spare you his judgment? When the intents of your heart are laid bare, when every careless word is exposed, when every broken promise is revealed, when every lust and lie and every vile particle of arrogance and self-righteousness is uncovered, what will you say? you say with myriads of Christians across the centuries all I have is Christ nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling what justification will you offer the king of heaven to open his gates to you for only one answer will do and it is to say, Lord, look not on me, but upon your son. For my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My non-Christian guest, you've tracked with us very well so far. And now I turn the question back to you. Is Jesus Christ the center of your universe? Is he the sun or is he one of the planets? Unless you repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, you will have no sufficient answer to give on that day. And we love you enough to tell you that you must turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Before you leave this room today, find a Christian and tell them you'd like to know Jesus Christ. You'd like to have your sins forgiven. They'll pray with you. They'll begin meeting with you. It's such a priority that, yes, I know Christmas is coming up. We've got lots of meetings and stuff to to, to take this week. We'll meet with you. Tell you more about this God. Tell you more about salvation through His Son. Luke says, the disciples kept silent. They told no one what they had seen on the mountain. And we don't know why. Maybe old Peter, after having taken his foot out of his mouth, was afraid to put it back in. Maybe they just needed some time to process what they'd seen on the mountain. But eventually they did process what they had seen on the mountain. For Peter would go on to preach Christ boldly. And he would see many people come to faith. He would perform miracles. He would write books of the Bible. He would give the rest of his life to serving his Lord. And church history tells us that he was crucified on an upside-down cross. John would go on to write five books of the New Testament. If you're following along in our church Bible reading plan, you read one of them yesterday. He pastored the church in Ephesus. He cared for Jesus' mother until her final days. James served the church until he was made a martyr by King Herod. And these men and their devotion and giving of their lives to Christ for the furtherance of the gospel is not extraordinary. Well, This is just what happens when anyone sees the glory of God in Christ. This is what happens when everyone that God wakes up and gives eyes to see, see Jesus. This is what happens. And so maybe you need a mount of transfiguration of your own. You need your own mountaintop experience. But let's not go on thinking that we need the exact same mountaintop experience as Peter. John and James. For some years after the Apostle Peter came down from that mountain, he wrote this in 2 Peter 1. Listen to what Peter says about this experience he had with Jesus. He says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And now listen to what Peter says next. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. you see what Peter is saying? He's saying that his experience on the mountain is one thing. But we have something more certain than even that. We have the word of God. The Bible that you hold in your lap is a mount of transfiguration for you. And according to Peter, it is a more reliable, more life-changing experience than even the one he had with Jesus on the mountain. And in this book we get the same voice from heaven shining the same light on the same sun of his glory with the same law and the same prophets subsumed into the same person. And so this week go deep in this book. And in your reading plan pray and ask God the Holy Spirit to Reveal the glory of God the Son in the same way that Jesus was transformed on the mountain. The light of his glory will break through the words of this page upon your heart. And to reveal to you the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Gaze at this book this week. Gaze in awestruck wonder like Peter and John and James at the glories of God in Christ. Because everything is about Jesus. Look to Him and listen to Him. Let's pray. Father, we have made You too small in our eyes. We have made Your Son a planet and something else, the Son. Please forgive us. Will you forgive us for thinking too much of ourselves and too little of your Son? Lord Jesus, be big in our lives this week. As we look forward to celebrating Christmas this week, Lord, make Jesus the center, the sum of all that we do. Would you ignite a fire of delight in our heart for your son? Would you grant us eyes to see the glories of God in Christ? Awaken us from our slumber and let us see him. Let us hear him. Lord, thank you for granting to us a mountaintop experience more certain than even the one we've read about today. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Please make us all good Bible students, ready and willing to reform our lives according to your perfect word. For all things are by Jesus and for Jesus. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. One of my favorite parts of our service is where we read a section of scripture that assures us that when we go to the Lord asking for forgiveness for our sins, he issues us an assurance that because of Christ, because of the mercy of God, we have been forgiven of our sins. And so today's assurance of pardon comes from the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, where we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights his steadfast love. Brothers, lead us in one more.